Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about the people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today we have a special production of Living Heritage recorded in front of a live audience at the Admiralty House Museum in Mount Pearl as part of the launch of their Faces of the Florizel exhibit. So welcome, welcome one and all to this. This is um, uh, an exciting event for us. It's the first time that we've done a live recording of the Living Heritage Show. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a background of the Living Heritage Program. It's a, it's a project that was started about 102 episodes ago uh, with uh, CHMR Radio at Memorial University and the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador, where I work. And, and every week or so, we do a radio broadcast um, with the CHMR radio. And then that recording is then put online so that people around the world who are interested in heritage can download that and listen to it on their cell phones and whatnot. So my first guest today is Heather Elliott, who is the original shipster, naval researcher, and nautical know-it-all, uh, who uh, is currently doing her master's in anthropology at Memorial University, works at the rooms, and runs the original shipster blog. She has a, a long-time interest in nautical naval history. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So we're talking today about the Florizel, and, and I know people who are here in the audience tonight probably know something about the Florizel, but some people who are listening from away might not know. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the ship itself? Sure. So the Florizel was commissioned after um, C.T. Bowering and Company Limited lost the SS Silva in 1908. So they were down a ship and realized they were going to need a new one. So they commissioned the Florizel. She was constructed in uh, Glasgow, Scotland, and delivered to Newfoundland in 1909. And she was multi-purpose. So she, during the sealing season, would be used as a sealer and would take the sealers out to the ice pans and was used to do all of that. And then she'd come back in in April, they would rip her apart and put in all her mahogany and oak finishings, all her brass finishings, and she, was, she became a luxury liner and she would serve the route from New York to Halifax and St. John's and back for the remainder of the year and then she would flip again. So she was deliberately outfitted in such a way to be a cut above all the other ships that were in the harbor at the time. She was at the time actually the, the very picture of luxury for what you could find in a vessel that was coming out of St. John's. What's the First World War connection with the Florizel? So the first 500, the first uh, 500 um, soldiers in the Newfoundland Regiment marched from Pleasantville uh, down on the shores of Kittybitty Lake right onto the SS Florizel in St. John's Harbor. And she helped take that first group of recruits over to the UK. And so she actually became synonymous with the first 500 who are also known as the Blue Petites. And going forward from that up until 1916, she did serve part-time as a troop ship so whenever a new company was trained and they needed to be taken over to Southampton to then be offloaded and sent on trains to any of the training depots in the UK she was one of the vessels who would do that. You were talking about how she was kind of a top-of-the-line ship in some ways and she was also very modern for her age. Yes. Which, which links her to this facility here. She was one of the only vessels in the sealing fleet at the time that actually was outfitted in wireless. Her wireless system was actually instrumental in the 
uh, Newfoundland ceiling disaster in radioing the situation back to St. John's as well as communicating with a couple of the other vessels in the area that were also outfitted with wireless. And I believe it was uh, Joseph Kane who said that uh, in the aftermath he reflected and said this was a situation where if wireless had been on every ship then this disaster could have been avoided. Right. So that's a little bit of the background of the ship. So, so what then happened? Can you walk us through the timeline of what happened on February 23rd? So the ship actually left St. John's and sailed out through the Narrows around 7.30 in the evening, and she was heading for Halifax. She had 137 souls on board, uh, passengers and crew, and she was... Immediately she hit bad weather, so it was clear when she left, but then as soon as she started on her journey, a blizzard came up, which really reduced visibility for the crew. Slob ice also meant that they couldn't drop their ship log off the back of the ship, so they couldn't get a really good gauge of how fast they were going. Um, and as the weather continued to deteriorate, they just kind of had to make do. Then as they, the captain kind of checked the time and figured out, okay, based on how fast we should be going and how long we've been at sea, we should have cleared the bottom of the southern shore. So he gave the order to turn westward and to start heading down towards Halifax. Unfortunately, uh, due to a number of different factors, uh, he was wrong and they had actually only made it as far as Kappa Hayden. And as they neared closer to shore, he wrote that he saw ice out in the, on the water and figured, oh, that's just ice. It's small bergs and that kind of thing. It was actually white caps breaking up on the coast. And in a matter of minutes, the Florizel, Captain Martin and his crew and passengers were all run aground 250 meters from shore. Yeah, so fairly close, really, yeah. to shore. Yeah. So then um, the, the ship strikes and then what kind of unfolds then? So because the water was so rough, the ship's getting battered against the rocks and uh, passengers are scrambling to try and uh, be to just to find safety on the deck somehow. Um, you have cases of a giant wave comes along and takes the entire smoke room and the over 30 people that were inside just like that. Um, there's stories of passengers holding onto the railing, trying to just keep afloat and just being washed away. One of the most famous ones, unfortunately, is uh, Betty Munn and her father, John Munn. And Betty was three and a half years old. She was traveling with her father and her uh, nurse. And uh, her father had her under his arm and was holding onto the railing and a wave came and took her. And there was testimony after of a crewman who said that he was near Mr. Munn and he reached out his hand and he told him to grab his hand and to hold on. And Mr. Munn just looked at him and just all hope in his face was gone. And the next time a wave came along, he was gone too. And that's how a lot of people were lost, especially in those early moments, was just the sea was ruthless and just ripped people from the wreck. Right. So uh, at what point was... Uh an SOS sent? An SOS was sent within the first few minutes. So um, the Marconi operator was sending an SOS that said, Florizel's been grounded, going to pieces, but it was only within a couple of minutes and then the power cut and the they were left to their own devices. The survivors were just left there in the dark and the cold to fend for themselves. So, so what time of night was this when this was happening? This was about 
Midnight. 4.50 in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then uh, it's 4.50 in the morning and word then goes from the wireless station to the barrings, I guess, originally. Yep. And, and then various ships were then dispatched. Yep. So one of the first, the first two to arrive on the scene were the Prospero and the Hawk. Uh, the one of the vessels, which escapes me right now, had actually just arrived into Marystown and had been planning to shore up for the night to weather out the storm. And the when Prospero, they, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And when they got word of the disaster, they turned and headed right back. So they were one of the first to arrive on the scene. Uh, eventually, by the end, there was also the home, the Gordon Sea, and the Terra Nova. So there were five ships, all told, that arrived on site to try and rescue survivors from the wreck. Right. And, and how, how long a process was, was that, the, the rescuing of people? 27 hours. Right. That yeah. they were out there. Yeah. So then what, what happens then in the, in the day and, and days following the, the wreck itself? Um, you have small boats that are being sent from the rescue vessels that are getting swamped, even trying to get to the wreck. For the first little while, it wasn't even clear if there were any survivors because a group of survivors had actually uh, hidden themselves away in the Marconi room, which was the only part of the um, superstructure that remained because it had been protected by the funnel. So you have them all huddled away, and as these boats are trying to get closer and closer to the wreck because of the rocks, because of the waves, they're getting swamped, they're being sent back. And one of the boats that returns to the Prospero says that they heard a really faint call saying there were 40 alive. And that was what really revigorated the rescue process because they knew there was someone there to be saved. Um, as it continues on, you know, you start getting cases of where when they start offloading passengers uh, or survivors, the the small boats are going so severely like there's one moment they're 10 feet above the deck and then they're 10 feet below so it's a matter of you have to time it and you have to jump which is i mean i'm terrified to try and get into a boat when there's a small lop on the water so i can only imagine what it would be like under those circumstances but they do manage to pull people from the ship and start being able to get them safe and, and in the end how, how many people are rescued then there were 44 44 yeah um, how long after the, the event itself was there a call for an, for an inquest or an inquiry? Almost immediately. Um, and in the months that followed, there was an extensive inquiry where blame was laid on the captain initially as a, you know, it tends to be you're the one in command, so you're the one who takes the fall. Um, research since then has indicated that there was a few compounding factors that led to that incident, but it, his, uh, Captain Martin's certificate was actually uh, suspended for 21 months. But because of good behavior in the lead up to the disaster, he could still serve as a mate on ships at that time. He just wasn't allowed to command any. Yeah. And, and then what was the kind of the longer term impact of that, that particular wreck? Uh, after that, it was required that um, people, you needed wireless on all of the vessels, there was actually, when you look at advertisements for the time in the days after, and I'm talking like mere days after the wreck, there's advertisements in the newspapers for like survival suits and <laughs> that sort of thing to kind of say, you know, if SOS means anything to you, you should have this equipment on your, on your ships. And it also really did push that, you know, um, captains had to be responsible for taking soundings and things, because one of the findings was, had Captain Martin done soundings in the lead up, then he would have known that they were off course. Right. 
One, one of the little stories I wanted to ask you about was the Mount Carmel Memorial, because that's kind of an interesting little side note to this, this entire story. So there is a memorial to the victims of the Florizella in Mount Carmel, but there's also a smaller memorial that is for the uh, Spanish stokers who were on board the Florizel. So they had a crew of 14 uh, stokers from Spain who worked in the boiler rooms, and of those 14, all but one were lost. And they created a small memorial in memory of those people. And actually, even now, the Spanish Navy does fishery patrols off the coast of Newfoundland, and they'll come into port once a year. And when they come in to visit, they will actually go up to Mount Carmel, and they will have a memorial service to remember those sailors who were lost at sea. Hmm. As someone who, who is you know, passionate about naval uh, nautical history, um, is there something about this particular story that speaks to you? Is there something about the Florizel that resonates with you? Um, it's one of those stories, and Newfoundland has, with any big historical event that happens in Newfoundland, there, there's always that really strong community connection. So with the Battle of Beaumont Hamill, it, it ran right across the island. Everyone had either been affected or knew someone who had been affected. Similar with the Ocean Rangers, similar with the Cougar Crash, and the Florizel for me, it's another example of that kind of tight-knit community connection because even if someone didn't know someone personally who had been lost, they knew someone who had lost someone. Or uh, Betty Munn, for example, who was so young and she was a very familiar face in St. John's. So for a lot of people in the city at the time, it, it felt like they had lost a, a child or a young relative of their own. And for me, it just, it really drives home that this is an area of history that is not very thoroughly explored in Canada mm -hmm. and in Newfoundland, and it drives home that it really was an integral part. Like this happened with remarkable frequency at this, you know, time of the century, and there's not actually a lot of people who realize that this would be equivalent of someone, you know, passing in a car crash or the rare occasion of a plane crash. Now it's it's a similar correlation. Right. So a uh, hundred years on, we have this uh, event, these events that are happening to mark this this uh, anniversary. Um, as as a historian, what what do these public kind of events mean to our understanding of of history? I think they're incredibly important because they create awareness of these events. It makes it connects the past with those of us now, and it helps preserve the memories of these people. There are still relatives and descendants of these individuals who were lost or who survived. And by doing commemorations like this, it's important to keep those memories alive, to keep those stories alive. Any appreciation for our past is so critical because it's where we came from and it can help guide us to where we're going. And I think commemorations and events like this exhibit are, are such an important part of that. I think that's a perfect note on which to end. Uh, Heather <laughs> Elliott, thank you very much. Thank you. So our second guest uh, tonight is Deanna Walter, who is the assistant manager here at Admiralty House Communications Museum. Um, welcome to the program. Thank you for coming. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I want to talk to you tonight about the exhibit itself, the faces of the Florizel, and kind of the story behind the exhibit. We've, we've learned about the story behind the wreck, and now we want to talk a little bit about how this all came together. So, so how did this whole entire project begin? Because I know you were involved in the very early stages. Yeah, so um, 
I guess two years ago, 2016, I was in Barrie, Ontario, doing my post-grad certificate in museum and gallery studies. And at that point, I already knew that I was doing my internship here at Admiralty House. And uh, one of our projects was to uh, create education programs for the uh, place you were interning at. So um, I didn't know a whole lot about Admiralty House. Uh, a lot of the information I got was from the website and I didn't know anything about the floor as well. I uh, didn't even know it had happened. Um, but one of the programs I created was actually called Faces, The Faces of Disaster and it was about the SS Florizel. And when I did, when I came here and did my internship, I showed the binder to um, the manager then, and she loved the idea and said, you know, this is what we have to do for our Florizel exhibit in 2018. So um, I'm pretty fond of alliteration, so we changed it around to Faces of the Florizel, and that's sort of how it came to be. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the research uh, process. Uh, how, how do we know what we know uh, about the Florizel? Where does, where does the information come from? Uh, a lot of it came from uh, Cassie Brown's collection at the Center for Newfoundland Studies at MUN. She has an extensive collection on not just the Florizel, but a lot of other shipwrecks that she studied. Um, she wrote A Winter's Tale, which was about the wreck of the Florizel. And she, I'm not sure where she got all of this information, but she has um, transcripts of the inquiry, which is over 500 pages. She has newspaper articles, photographs of passengers and crew members. So we were able to get a lot of our foundation from Cassie Brown's research as well as other archives within the province. Yeah, and there's pretty good newspaper records. And there are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so when, we, when you talk about creating that base of research, when, when you do that, there are obviously certain gaps uh, in the historical A record. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, so can you, can you talk about that? Like how do you start to identify you know, stories that you don't know enough about? And then, and then where do you go from there? Well, we... We knew pretty much early on that we wanted to focus on the people rather than just the disaster because I think when you when you think about shipwrecks you you automatically think in terms of numbers and statistics. So this many people were on board, this many people died. Um, and we wanted to focus on the human aspect, the stories because they are transcendent and they they carry on. Um, so basically we looked into Cassie Brown's collection and found what photographs and research she had done. And then we put a call out onto social media and we took a few names each week and we put it on our Facebook page and Instagram and we said, if you know any of these people, please get in contact with us. Uh, we also had NTV come by and they did a little news story for us. And we also had, we reached out to VOCM 
So after that, we got a lot of people contacting us with new stories and information and photographs, which was really wonderful. Yeah. So can you, can you talk about some of the specifics, like some of the, the people that you discovered things about? One of the, the names I wanted to ask you about was Charles Miller. Yeah. So tell, tell me that so story. So Charles Miller, I got, the, I got a phone call from a man in uh, Virginia and he was related to Charles Miller. And Cassie Brown did not have any information on Charles Miller. In fact, she refers to him uh, in her book as C.H. Miller, so she didn't even have a first name. And he uh, phoned us and gave us uh, a whole background information, gave us a photograph. And Charles's story is probably one of my favorites. Um, he had lost his wife in 1912 due to an ectopic pregnancy. He already had two small boys. Uh, he was working um, with his brother-in-law in a furniture business in St. John's. He had also helped found the first synagogue in St. John's. His uh, wife's family was Jewish. He was not, Miller's not a very Jewish name. Um, and in 19, late 1917, he had relatives visit from New York and he fell in love with a distant cousin. Her name was Eva and they were going to get married. Um, Eva's family was traveling to New York and Charles was going to travel with them. However, his sister Minnie had sort of suggested that it might not be a good idea if he traveled on the same boat with her, even though she was being accompanied by family. So he bought a ticket for the next available ship to New York, which happened to be the Florizel. And Minnie was going to take care of his two young boys. Charles Miller did not survive, and I'm sure his sister Minnie felt terrible about that. Mm. Um, but this was a new story and um, just, just the, the time period and, you know, this was, this was the norm, you know, these were, um, what people, you know, you had to be chaperoned and, you know, you couldn't be alone with your, um, your intended, your intended. <laughs> so, um, something as simple as that just completely shattered an entire family. Right. So. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm also curious about the the collection of the artifacts that you can see in the exhibit because the, the exhibit is partially text yeah. and photographs but then there's also these amazing artifacts yeah. uh, can you tell us a little bit about where some of these came from or how, how you how you uncovered some of these things yeah we were very fortunate to um, to have some new artifacts to display over in the exhibit space excuse me um, one of them uh, we just got last month, actually, it's a chair off of the Florizel. It's actually a saloon chair. Um, and we just, we got a phone call one day about a man who, you know, had this chair and he thought it had been off the Florizel. He had gotten it from a man who lived in Renews and it had been sitting in his attic for 50 years and he lived in Fairland and him and his wife were cleaning out their house found the chair and um, they contacted us and said do you want it if not it's going to Robin Hood Bay 
So we said, yes, please. <laughs> um, and he actually, his friend came over with a picture of the chair and that's how we were able to match it up with archival images. We cried tears of joy. <laughs> and the next day he brought it over and donated it to us. And it's a fascinating piece. I, I, I remember either you or Sarah Wade talking about that you were getting a chair and I thought, oh, a chair, like how exciting is that? But it's actually yeah. really, it's not just yeah. an ordinary chair. It's a very interesting, it's a very unique looking kind of piece. Yeah, when you look at it, it almost sings to you. <laughs> it's it's very powerful and I think when you, when you look at it and you think about the disaster um, a lot, you think, who sat in this chair? And you know, um, and all the people who who would have used that chair. Now it was a saloon chair, so people would have been drinking. So probably not nice ladies. <laughs> probably not nice ladies. <laughs> um, but there's this story of J.P. Kiley, and he survived, and he owned the Nickel Theater in St. John's. Um, and the story is that he got plastered, and when the boat struck, he sort of still had his faculties, but he hid out in his room for the duration of the wreck until rescue uh, and pretty much slept it off. Uh, so I, when I see this chair, I think, oh, maybe Kyle, uh, JP Kylie got drunk in this chair. <laughs> Uh, one of the other objects I wanted to ask you about was the telescope. Yeah. So tell me, what is the story behind the telescope? So the telescope is on loan, and it belonged to Herbert Taylor. Herbert Taylor was the fourth engineer on board the SS Florizel. Now, the the telescope did not uh, come off of the Florizel. I don't think they were worried about taking anything with them. Um, but he did own the, the telescope afterwards, and he did survive the wreck. Uh, at the time of the wreck, he was 22. Uh, however, 10 years later, in 1928, at the age of 33, he died due to complications from tuberculosis. So a lot of passengers and crew members, even if they survived, they suffered ill health afterwards, many of them. Hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing the panels and, and, and putting the exhibit together? Yeah, um, so I wrote a very rough preliminary draft. Uh, I had all the research, so I knew what stories I wanted to focus on and what stories we wanted to tell. And um, we ended up hiring a, a writer-editor, Sandy Newton. Um, she, is also, she also helped with the Beaumont Hamill exhibit at the rooms. And she turned it into something amazing. Um, we sort of wanted to tell the story as if it was Morgan Freeman playing God, sort of telling the story almost in like second person. <laughs> um, and she really captured that sort of your when you go through the exhibit, you're you, you in the immersed. moment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you are you are in 1918 and you are you are reliving these people's stories and, and the moments in time. And since the since the exhibit's open, what has the response been from people who have come in and seen it? It's been overwhelming. I even so we opened on Saturday and we had over 150 people through the door and we 
we got new stories that day and new photographs and it was amazing. So I hope that they continue to come in because the Florizel is part of our permanent collection. So we're always looking to add to the information that we have. And I think history is always evolving. We're always adding to it. There's always little tiny holes to fill in or big holes. Um, there's sometimes there's huge chunks missing. And so I think if we can add to that throughout the course of this exhibit, that would be wonderful. We were setting up tonight and Lee Tizard, who's our, our sound engineer, had a, had a, a family connection as well. Yes, yeah. uh, his aunt was Cassie Brown, who wrote A Winter's Tale. So I had a little fangirl moment. <laughs> <laughs> so now if people want more information on Admiralty House itself, where can they go and get more information? We are on all the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we have our own website uh, you can email us call us drop in and how long will the exhibit be running the exhibit will be running through June 29th so we're open the annex will be open Wednesdays through Sundays thank you for coming on the show thank you I'm Dale Jarvis You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening. <laughs>